Welcome to The Bridgehead with Jonathan Van Maren, bringing you cutting-edge news, commentary, and interviews from the front lines of the culture wars. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridgehead on AM 530 at 1.30 p.m. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and I'll be your host for the next half hour. Now, one of the issues that we want to discuss today is an issue that rarely actually gets discussed in context of the abortion issue because even so-called pro-choice people are very, very uncomfortable having the discussion in general. And that's because when it comes to the abortion issue in, in Canada and the United States, we have what's what I call a cognitive dissonance between what we instinctively and intellectually know about the preborn child in the womb, and then what we culturally believe about abortion. Now, a cognitive dissonance is the ability to hold two ideas in the same head without feeling the need to reconcile those two ideas. But people all know that the, the person we're talking about in the womb is a human being, because that's why nobody asks their friends who say they're expecting what they're expecting. Uh, everybody has seen an ultrasound, everybody has seen a sonogram, but the later stages of pregnancy make it even more impossible for pro-choice people to deny that what they are advocating for in abortion is an act of barbarism, which is why I thought Rand Paul, one of the presidential candidates uh, for the Republican ticket in the United States, was very clever when he was being pounded by the media once again on whether or not he supported a rape exception in an abortion ban. And Rand Paul turned it around and said, why are we always focusing on these uh, very, very minority cases when it comes to the abortion issue? Why aren't we looking at the other end of the spectrum where Democrats support killing a seven-pound baby? And that was very, very revealing because a lot of people would be very appalled to find out what the details of late-term abortion are. And when we converse with people on the streets find out very quickly that they're very open to opposing late-term abortion. In fact, the majority of Canadians do. And people would be even more appalled to find out that there's actually a complication to late-term abortion, a medical complication, it's called, and it's referred to as live birth. And that's because the most unwanted complication that can occur as a result of this particular procedure is the birth of a live human being. Because, of course, the entire intent of the procedure is to destroy that human being developing in the womb. Now, a lot of people say it's just very sensationalist to claim that in any way late-term abortion could cause the devaluing of, of newborn life, for example, could lead to infanticide. Now, first, of course, I would argue that abortion is infanticide. It's just being done in the womb, and it's being done where the vast majority of people can't actually see what's going on. But there are precedents now here in Canada to show that ab abortion is impacting the way we view the value of newborns as well. For example, a couple of years ago when Katrina Efforts strangled her newborn baby boy and tossed him over the fence, and an Edmonton Queen's Court judge uh, only gave her a suspended sentence no jail time, because she said that clearly Katrina Effort had murdered her baby son for the exact same reasons that any woman would have an abortion. She used not only Canada's lackadaisical attitude towards abortion, but justifications used for abortion to say that what Katrina Effort did was just a really, really late-term abortion, not that big a deal. We, of course, have the baby in the balcony case as well, where... 
I watched actually a panel of Supreme Court judges argue about whether a corpse left on the balcony of a woman in Mississauga was a fetus or a baby. And they didn't know what to call it because under Canadian law, if that child had died in the mother's womb, then she would be guilty of nothing. However, if she had killed that baby upon exiting the womb, suddenly we would be faced with a very big problem. And it was just ridiculous to watch these judges stumble over what to call it. They referred to it as the contents of the pregnancy. They referred to it as it. They did not know what to call what all of them knew was a baby because as soon as they referred to it as a baby, uh, the cat would be screaming and howling out of the bag. And I just didn't know what to think about these supposedly intelligent people, or shall I refer to them as maybe uh, the contents of legal robes, just not knowing what to call uh, this human being's body that was found on a balcony. And that's because of legal abortion, because We've decided that it's okay to kill one class of human beings, and that's spilling over into how we treat all human beings. Now, Canadians especially will say, oh, this never happens. Americans are a little bit more used to the idea uh, of infanticide in regards to the abortion debate because of the trial of Kermit Gosnell. I actually attended his trial in Philadelphia and saw the procedure called snipping actually being described where he would just deliver the babies, uh, stick a scissors in the back of their neck and snip their spinal cords. So the American pro-life movement has been upfront in dealing with the fact that they're not just dealing with in utero and Infanticide. They are increasingly dealing with ex-utero infanticide with an entire a conveyor belt of cold-blooded killers like Kermit Gosnell uh, openly engaging in these practices. But the Canadian side of uh, the border has tried to ignore this possibility to as, as much of an extent as they possibly can, even though we discovered uh, in 2011 that 491 babies had been born alive and left to die as the result of pregnancy. And now, actually, there's a headline on LifeSite News called Babies Left to Die, 182 Children Born Alive Then Died After Failed Abortions in 2013 and 2014. That's from Stats Canada. And the information was discovered by pro-life blogger Patricia Maloney, a friend of mine. She's a wonderful researcher and a wonderful blogger. And she actually found out that according to official data from Stats Canada, as many as 182 babies died after they were born alive following late-term abortions in 2013 and 2014, which is a 16% increase over 2011 and 2012. So we know that there's babies that are being delivered alive and then are dying. I remember talking to a nurse in Kelowna. Who, who told me this story, told me that she could remember how the baby sounded when the doctor tossed the baby in the trash and it snuffled and tried to make a few noises before it died. And the story gives us details of what goes on. It goes on to emphasize that the fetuses, quote-unquote, qualify for live births category if they show a faint sign of life, quote, be it momentary heartbeat, a sudden gasp, or in rare cases, crying. One of the official collectors of the data, the Canadian Institute for Health Information, described the following hypothetical case to instruct health information filers. If a preborn baby is diagnosed with fetal anencephaly, uh, that means the baby has no brain, and aborted at 23 weeks, the quote, fetus was born alive and survived one hour, is classified with live births resulting from the termination of a pregnancy. Now, a lot of people still do find this appalling, and I... Dread the day when we no longer think of uh, babies 
drawing in one last ragged gasp of breath on a hospital bed as something that isn't appalling when we start to look at people like Kermit Gosnell as just really effective and creative abortionists, when we start to look at statistics like this and ignore it. But we're partially there in our country where the politicians know uh, there are babies that are dying inside and outside the womb and doing nothing. But I want to draw attention to what actually takes place when a baby dies after a late-term abortion because I think it's really important to discover what's going on because only when people really know the, that babies are, are dying in horrific fashion can they start to recognize that late-term abortion laws and abortion laws are incredibly important because we always get the argument from the pro-choice crowd that there's hardly any late-term abortions, so why should we pass a law here in Canada banning them? As if that, that, that argument would be made for any other crime, that just because very few people get beaten to death because they're of a specific orientation or skin color religion, therefore we shouldn't have laws that prevent them from in fact being killed for those reasons. It's a really ludicrous point. And to, to discuss this issue, I called my friend Jill Stanick. Uh, she is a prominent pro-life blogger in the United States. And she was a registered nurse in the labor and delivery department at Christ Hospital in Oaklawn, Illinois. And while she was there, she discovered that abortions were being committed there and that abortions, uh, babies were being aborted and left alive to die without any medical care. Now, when she announced that this was taking place. She ended up on the O'Reilly Factor on Hannity, the Associated Press Quarter, CNN, Washington Post, Newsweek, and so on. And she's testified before the Judiciary Constitution Subcommittee of the U.S. House of Representatives and in several state legislatures on this issue. And her written testimony has been read several times by U.S. Congre congressional debates on the Partial Birth Abortion Ban and Born Alive Infants Protection Act. So I called Jill to ask her to tell us her story and what it was like to see a, a child born alive and then left out to die. So when did you first come into contact with the fact that babies were being born alive and left to die? Had you had much contact with the abortion issue prior to this? Not really at all. I went to work at Christ Hospital on the southwest side of Chicago because of its name. You know, I was personally pro-life, didn't want to be involved in it, and I thought, I would be safe from such ethical dilemmas like abortion at a hospital named Christ and never even thought to ask. I was naive at the time and didn't even know when I worked in the labor and delivery department for an entire year that it was going on all around me. But as far as my pro-life leanings, I would say at that point I um, wouldn't be involved in abortion myself, but I don't know that I necessarily was I know I wasn't involved in the movement whatsoever and probably considered people like what I've become right <laughs> a little a little crazy yeah. a little out there so when did you first start to realize what was going on all around you so I guess what you described is you would have been a personally pro life person somebody who right. who grew up sort of I always call it dormant pro lifers Right. is that those, that worldview is sort of their inheritance, but they've never really grappled with it in any serious way. So what was it that, that made you realize what, what abortion was really all about? Well, I heard in, as far as my particular instance, I heard in report one night that we were aborting a second trimester baby with Down syndrome, and that was the first I knew that this was going on, and then went on to find out that the method of abortion that this hospital used, and we now know many hospitals and abortion clinics internationally, called induced labor abortion, 
sometimes resulted in babies being aborted alive, and if they were aborted alive, they were shelved in the hospital soiled utility room to die. So I found this out and then proceeded to sit on it a little while, knowing that I needed to deal with it, but I didn't really know how to. And right. it came crashing home to me one night when a nursing coworker was taking another a little abortion survivor who had Down syndrome to the soiled utility room to die. And when she told me what she was doing, I couldn't bear the thought of this suffering child dying alone. He was between 21 and 22 weeks old. So I held him for 45 minutes till he died. Now, he couldn't have been resuscitated because his lungs weren't mature. But uh, in the span of that 45 minutes, I was converted from, as you called it, a dormant pro-lifer to a pro-life activist, as people could understand. And I'm ashamed to say that that's what it took because there are millions of other pro-lifers that have never had a personal experience such as I had who are, you know, just as passionate, if not more passionate, about pro-abortion than I am now. What did you do after that first experience then as you were converted over that 45 minutes to a hardcore pro-life activist? How did you react to the, the fact that you just had a, a tiny human being die in your arms? Well, I knew that I had to do something, and my two options were to leave the hospital or to stay and fight. So I sought counsel from my pastor, and I prayed and read scripture and um, came up on a passage that I thought spoke directly to me, and it's one I'm sure... Um, your listeners, many of them are familiar with Proverbs 24, 11, and 12. And it says, Rescue those who have unjustly been sentenced to death. Don't stand back and let them die. Don't try to disclaim responsibility by saying that you didn't know about it. For the Lord who knows all hearts knows you knew, and he will reward everyone according to his deeds. And so I thought those were my marching orders. I was called to stay and fight. So um, my pastor and I determined that the way that I should handle this would be, according to Matthew 18, um, Jesus' directive when you find someone in sin. First, you approach them privately, and if your private appeal doesn't work in them repenting, then you take back a couple of witnesses, again, privately. And then if that doesn't work, you take the matter before the church. So I wrote a letter to the religious leaders of the hospital because I didn't think that they could possibly know what was going on in the labor and delivery department. The hospital is affiliated with two church denominations, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America and United Church of Christ, which I now know are pro-abortion denominations. This is something I had no idea existed back then. Right. And so these religious leaders knew. I was called in for a meeting with my department superiors, who are both Catholic, by the way, and they told me that, Christ Hospital didn't think this method up, and it wasn't going to stop, and I might be better suited at another hospital that was in line with my pro-life convictions. So that was step one. It didn't work. They, they weren't going to stop. Step two was to ask some influential organizations and people to privately appeal to the hospital, and such as Cardinal Francis George, who wrote a letter, and Dr. C. Everett Koop, the former Surgeon General of the United States under President Reagan, and some influential organizations like Concerned Women for America. But the hospital still said it wasn't going to stop. And so we went public in July of 1999 with a letter. to uh, It was addressed to 70 churches and pro-life organizations in the Chicago area and around the country, letting them know what Christ Hospital was up to. 
and that letter triggered immediate public outcry from one end of the country to the other because nobody really was aware of this method of abortion before that time, right. and it was being committed at a hospital named Christ, which was inflammatory, of course, to Christians. So word spread quickly and easily, Newsweek, New York Times, you know, you name it, um, newspapers, magazines, news, um, you know, uh, TV, radio news covered it. I was asked to speak on the O'Reilly factor. I didn't even know who Bill O'Reilly was. And, you know, just um, public outcry was immediate once the news went, went out. And what was sort of the personal impact of that, just before I follow up on how the nation reacted to this news, when I first heard you describe, uh, you know, holding a baby as it, as it died over 45 minutes, I thought, what about all the other people who saw the same thing? Uh, you know, these people are working in a hospital, and, and, and you know, first trimester abortions, as gruesome as, as we know they are, the, the people performing the abortions can, for the most part, avoid visual contact with, with the victim. Whereas here you have a, a very different scenario where somebody actually has to carry this living child to the soil utility room and leave them there. So what was the impact on the other people involved in these procedures? Well, response was divided. Um, a pro-abortion hospital personnel in the department were, of course, angry. Um, you didn't have to participate in these abortions if you didn't want to, so uh, they they did, and they agreed with it. Uh, and then, but I was really taken aback by pro-life response, which was also anger, because as it turned out, this is 1999. The hospital had been unofficially committing these abortions since 1978 for over two decades. And so thousands, literally, of pro-life medical personnel came through that department in 20 years, including nursing assistants and staff secretaries and medical students and residents, you know, not just nurses and doctors, but all manner of medical personnel came through and nobody said anything. And so they were embarrassed that I went public and they were having to go to church and explain to their family and, and you know, parishioners that, yeah, I do work there and, yeah, it goes on, and uh, had to either defend the hospital or defend themselves for working at the hospital. So they didn't like me going public either. When a few years ago in Canada, and you, you probably did hear about this, the, it was discovered by, by a, a search of Stats Canada information addressing various medical procedures that at least 491 babies had been born alive after failed abortions and left to die here in Canada. This was in, in 2013. And there was one member of Parliament, Maurice Vellicott, who brought it forward uh, to the House of Commons and asked that the RCMP investigate this as a crime, especially since even though abortion is legal in Canada throughout all nine months, uh, the child is officially considered a human with protection after exiting the birth canal. And uh, you know, our Prime Minister, Stephen Harper, refused to address the, the issue entirely. And, and the opposition side of the House essentially admitted that infanticide was just really late abortion uh, by saying this was just an attempt to open the abortion debate. So our politicians reacted to what we initially thought was really shocking information that might spur them to action with shrugging apathy or outright justification. How did the politicians in the U.S. react to your story and your revelations? Well, I said that I'm I was uh I'm from Illinois and so interestingly enough, 
what happened was we went to the Illinois Attorney General, who was Republican and supposedly pro-life, and he said that he could find nothing wrong with what Christ Hospital was doing, illegal. And so on the state level, the Born Alive Infants Protection Act was introduced, which would guarantee equal protection constitutionally to babies who were aborted alive, who were unwanted, uh, had to get the same care as wanted babies, and even if they were very young. And you're right, Jonathan, that abortion has really messed up people's minds um, because politicians, pro-abortion politicians, have a hard time with this. And they have it in their heads that if a mom wanted to commit that abortion and somehow the baby um, survives the first attempt to kill him or her, that that baby should be allowed to die or outright killed after that baby's born. And I ran into this in my own state Senate. State Senator Barack Obama, in committee, argued with me on this very point. And he is on record, his Senate floor testimony says that he thought that giving these born babies we're talking about now, not pre-born babies, the same rights as full-term wanted babies, he said, would lead to the overturn of Roe v. Wade. And so he voted against the bill four times in the state level, and it, and it failed four different years until he left the state Senate for the U.S. Senate, and then it finally passed. You know, he took the lead in opposing the bill on the state level. That said, on the federal level, the Born Alive Infants Protection Act was introduced, too. And those legislators were a bit more savvy. You know, they are they're federal legislators, and the pro-abortion legislators understood that this was an issue that they didn't want to get into. And so they unanimously passed it in the U.S. Senate, by voice vote passed it in the House, and were on record, Jerry, Jerry Nadler was on record as saying, you know, let's just get this over with, vote it, and then, you know, the less we make of it, the less attention and notoriety this will get. And that's exactly what happened. And you would say that the reason NARAL went neutral on it was because it revealed something particularly distasteful about the abortion industry? Right. NARAL, you're... NARAL went neutral on it because they also wanted the issue to go away, too, and they also realized that even if they personally didn't have a problem with infanticide, post-abortion uh, infanticide, which Father Pavone would call fourth trimester abortions, that they had to at least publicly come out and not oppose such a bill. What do you think the way forward is on the abortion issue when we've got the moral conscience of people slipping to the degree where you can point out that abortion is turning into infanticide, and they sort of shrug their shoulders. I was in Philadelphia for the Kermit Gosnell trial, and I remember I remember the look on his face when they were reading off all the things he was accused of, and he actually just gave them a big smile. And I feel like that's how a lot of people react to some of the shocking revelations we bring forward now. Well, I'm of the opinion, um, and this is based a little bit on history, of observing the partial birth abortion ban debates here in the states in the 1990s that President Clinton vetoed that bill twice. And so the debate was extended over years. And it was during that time, millennials were growing up, that we began to see a shift in public opinion that um, people, first of all, didn't realize, and a lot of them still don't realize, that abortion is legal in the U.S. too throughout all nine months of pregnancy. So that's an eye-opener. And then uh, most people abhor third trimester abortions and even second trimester abortions. 
And so in the U.S., you know, we're working a little bit backward now of, um, you know, introducing the Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act, which would protect babies from 20 weeks up. And just this um, week, uh, Governor Brownback of Kansas was the first to sign a bill that into law that banned dismemberment abortions, which would be dilatation and evacuation abortions from uh, probably 12 to 13 weeks on up. So we're working backward. Um, we've, you know, poll-wise, we've got the American people uh, opposed to third trimester abortions, second trimester abortions. Most reasons for getting abortions, which all most of them have to do with either primary or secondary birth control, and then uh, we are now needing to humanize babies in the first trimester and even as very young embryos. And I think that's where it is important to show the graphic images of these abortion victims at a very young age. You know, I'm sh you, I know you show them too of these very young, fully formed babies. Mm -hmm the size of, of a kidney bean on top of a dime, uh, you know, or, or showing how small but fully formed these babies are and helping people understand that a person's a person no matter how small, you know, in the words of Dr. Seuss, um, you know, working backward in that way to the point where we make all abortions unthinkable. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Jill Stanick, a prominent American pro-life blogger and a former nurse at Christ Hospital Oaklawn, Illinois, telling us about what it was like to see a human being born alive and left to die. I'd like everybody to go to lifesitenews.com and look at the news stories that are coming on about this in Canada. These things are happening in our country. We're just ignoring them. They are taking place, but we have a moral responsibility to act out on what's taking place because shared humanity equals shared responsibility. We'll be giving you more updates on this story and others in the coming weeks, and we thank you so much for joining us. Have a great weekend.